Hello, everyone. This is Jeff from Irenicast. This week is going to be our final installment on our four-part series on truth. This episode was recorded before the murder of George Floyd. This conversation centers around changing truths. And each of us on the show, we share our deconstruction process or our shift or our truth changes. Through the course of this conversation, as we each share our own individual stories, we begin to realize fairly quickly how our race, gender, sexual identity played a part in the impact that our truth change had on our lives. And because that becomes a large portion of the conversation that you're about to hear, we felt it would be disingenuous to not mention up front the murder of George Floyd and how relevant these themes are to us today and how much they are on the forefront of everyone's mind. But we also don't want to just leave it at that. And although we strive all the time here on Irenicast to make sure that we are valuing and lifting up people's voices from all walks of life, particularly those from marginalized communities and people groups. We want to make sure that we use our platform appropriately. And we feel that the most appropriate way that we can do that at this point is to highlight the voice of others. So in the beginning of the show notes for this episode, irenicast.com slash 168 and on our website, we are going to be cultivating an evolving list of anti-racist resources. And you can see the full list as it continues to evolve on irenicast.com slash anti-racist. And if you go to our page, it'll be one of the prominent tabs at the top as well going forward. The situation that we find ourselves in right now is not new. It may be more prominent. It may be more visible, but it is not new. And there are wonderful and amazing and intelligent voices that have been speaking to us for decades about the issues that we see in front of us right now. So we want to share those voices. We want to share those resources that help all of us here on Irenicast strive to be anti-racist in everything that we do. So we encourage you to check out that list. We encourage you to educate yourselves. We encourage you to learn more about why we are where we are and what we can do about it. So again, that resource list will be found at irenicast.com slash anti-racist, and it will be an evolving document, and we will continue to add to it as we continue to learn more ourselves. We hope that you find this week's episode encouraging and thoughtful and helpful in your journey, wherever you may be. So without any further ado, here is our final episode in our truth series, Changing Truths. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. It's Casey. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination this week. God willing, we are going to be finishing our truth series with a part four. We've talked about truth as a concept. We've talked about moral truth. We've talked about where our sources of truth come from. And today we're going to be talking about changing truths. How are truths of change? What are some ways in which we can equip ourselves, I guess, uh, to, to change and move and flow within the truths that life presents to us, I guess, would be the way to put it. And we're going to try to the best of our ab collective ability to keep this maybe practical. <laughs> uh, in, With our in, powers combined. That's right. Try not to head off into too, you know, 
too many heady realms, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. That's is, this is the nature of a conversation. We just do what we do. And for our segment, we're bringing back an oldie but a goodie, uh, one that we like to call Famous Christians for 100. I'm excited about this. I think this is the first time we've played this game all together as this uh, iteration of the Irenic cast. And the last time we played it, Casey, it was you and I on your episode, on episode 131. And we had a good time with that. So let's get into this. Bonnie has curated a, a group of questions for us to kind of guide this conversation. So I'm going to turn it over to our, our resident guru, our sage, our, oh, our, our, our truth changer, our truth changer. And she's going yeah, to, she's going to ask us some questions. It's, it's about to get real. It's about to get deep. It's about to get, yeah. it's about to get something. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let's start with that. As we were talking about truth, the last three episodes, it kept, striking me that, you know, each of us as individuals has gone through a process of changing truth. And we talked about, do we discover truth? Do do we make up truth as we go? All of those kinds of things. But the truth is, each of us has gone through this process of a whole of discovering or of living into a whole new truth. So let's talk about that. What was it like for you to like wake up one morning and just know that you were no longer operating with the same set of beliefs that had formed you. Like how did you know? And what was that like for you? It was odd for me. I think it depends on how big the truth is, right? And some of the truths that I had were all encompassing world shaping universe shaping and had lots of consequences. And so waking up outside of that was unsettling in some ways, I guess. Well, I think, I mean, before the waking up to a, a new reality, there's this, this process that kind of, you begin to, at least in my, in my experience, I began to feel like maybe I had been lied to and betrayed by the people I had once trusted and there was this new information, maybe even some evidence coming to light that, oh, this isn't what they said it was, um, and navigating through that. And, and, and you want to defend, or at least I wanted to defend where I had come from as being legitimate for as long as I possibly could. And when, once the sense of betrayal and like, this just isn't right, it, when it fell apart, the falling apart happened rapidly. The holding on took a long time, and that's where some subtle shifts happened. But once it fell apart, it fell apart rapidly. So there was the the anger, bewilderment, and like now what? I think I think it felt terrifying because you know I'm a communal person. Like I love being in relationship with people. And I knew that that waking up that morning and and my truth and my world shifting would mean that a lot of the people I loved and cared for cared for and cared about me would most likely turn their back on me or walk away and and the heavy weight of either telling my truth or not <laughs> because in telling my truth it would send me on a path at least I thought would leave me isolated and alone. And so that was that was scary to know that these people who said they loved you, who said that they would walk with you right through the fires of hell, 
really did not have the capacity to do that because the person I was becoming and the truth that I now knew would require that they would have to walk away. And I would have to also. That reminds me, Casey, uh, I forget sometimes, but it's almost like you're, you're setting off with just the consequences as your only journeying partners. Because people in your family, people in your church, people in your school, whatever, are not with you on that journey and are explicitly not so. So it's like, not only are you kind of shifting what what you believe, the consequences are looming larger and large, larger. For some of us, that's like loss of income too, not just, not just community, but also like livelihood. That's right. That's sobering. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Jeff, what about you? Um, this is a, a tough question for me because I don't think that I can pinpoint a moment. Um, I, I kind of feel like it's the opposite of Rajiv's experience where it wasn't just this collapse. It was this slow burn. And there never was one catastrophic incident that I would say – changed everything. I don't know. I'm, I'm not surely, I'm not a hundred percent sure how to articulate. I think it was there from the very beginning is that I was always taught to question. I don't even know if questions the right word. I was always, I was taught to be suspect uh, overtly or just that's where my circumstances growing up brought me to. And I've, you know, shared this before, but, but sharing my internal monologue led to negative consequences. So I learned quickly to keep that to myself and present a certain person. I think for me, it just, the tipping point was when the person that I was presenting became disingenuous then that's when I couldn't hold it together any longer. So it it wasn't like I would, it wasn't this thing where it's like be all things to all people where I'm just going to pretend to be this with someone else. They were all still reflections of who I was. It wasn't a matter of pretending to be something I not. It was a matter of choosing which part of my personality to represent in this given moment with this given group. So once it got to, once I was in a group where there were less and less of my personality traits that I could fully express, then it was, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I don't, I don't have anything left. And I think that a lot of those things were interactions that I had with authority. I, I had a pretty, <laughs> pretty regular confrontations with the, the, the pastors that I was working for and they always came down to the difference between what we were saying and what we were actually doing. And I think my idealism got in the way. A lot of that is that when my idealism clashed with reality and what we were actually doing, those were probably the big moments where it's like, no, 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 but wait, we said this. And then realizing over time, Oh, we said that, but we really mean this. We're really doing this. And those moments were catalysts for me in terms of where that changing truth was going to come to. Because to me, the only real truth is my experience. I'm sure, Alan, you have 
what the term is for that. Um, <laughs> but I, I like it to me that that's just it. Like if I'm thinking something and I'm doing something and I hit something in my real life that doesn't match up with that, then I have to reevaluate those thoughts because otherwise yeah. to me, they're just a, an exercise in, you know, whatever. And I, I, I'm fine with that. Like I like doing that. I think that's fun, but I think that to hold on to anything that doesn't match up with my experience is right or wrong. It's crippling. Because your experience is you. Did, did you feel like it was choice? The shift? No, the shift, the shift wasn't a choice at all. It, the shift happened. What to do about it were, was a series of choices. Whereas everyone else in your life is telling you it is a choice. Well, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they just, they literally don't know what well, they're because talking about. Some, right. Because some of us who are on the other side of things and don't want people to change, we're consciously making a choice to shove down some of our curiosities and doubts and cognitive dissonances. And, you know, when I said that, like, my changing truth, it depends on how big the truth is. While listening to you, uh, Jeff and Casey and Rajiv talk, I realized my biggest shift in truth happened when I realized I might not be married anymore. I remember waking up one morning and looking at my closet and seeing my clothes and her clothes and being like, there could come a day where it's just my clothes in the closet. And like my, what does that mean about me? Am I going to be able to survive? Will I be able to emotionally cope? Like, what are all the practical things that will happen? And I like felt in my body kind of a response. I never really had that with my changing faith just because. I still feel held by the universe. <laughs> Little baby Alan held by the entire universe. Like, whatever. Uh, I was always very fond of, of uh, physicists, especially like Richard Feynman and, and others who, who said things like, you know, whatever was true when I was born is still true. And I'm just getting to know it. And it's going to be true when I die. And so I felt like, you know, that Rajiv mentioned this need to defend. And I, I've been in those places, even on this show. If you go to lots, depends on which episode you, you, you're you on. I'm defending what I think because that's the way that I was raised with brothers. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, I've never felt like the truth ever needed to be defended. If something is worth believing, something is worth holding on to, it's self-evident. But when it came down to like my truth about my life and who I am, I understood myself as being a married person because I got married at 19. And so when I realized there was a future where that wasn't true anymore, like kind of even warming up to that idea was hard and it was an embodied experience. Yeah. I, I, um, as I was listening to all of you, I, I, my experience of transition didn't feel like it involved choice at all, but it, it was very much, I was very much the center of my own agency, but it wasn't about choice. And I think that, and it's hard to, I'm not sure what language to quite put to that, but I do remember being lured. <laughs> That's the word that you've heard on this podcast before in relationship to process theology. But I do remember feeling like there is this yearning or drawing out that's happening within me and is causing me to go into these different avenues of thought that I've, that I told were wrong or would lead me down a path that would end in destruction and hell and, you know, all the worst things you can imagine. And yet I felt like I had to go. I had to go to be a human being, to be alive. I had to go. 
yeah, it was like, it was like drinking water. It was, it felt like that sense of urgency within me. That's partly why I asked you, like, was it a choice for you or how, how would you describe that? You know, when you asked that, the, the first thing that came to mind was and that this is, this is going, this is going biblical on you, but, um, was the, the prophet Jeremiah where he's like, I want to stop this. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be your mouthpiece. I don't want to do this work because all it leads for me is suffering and, but I can't, there's like a fire in my bones. There's something that won't let me stop. And that's. I feel like that's been a constant in me is that at some point I was set on this path where these are things that have to be a reality. And, and I thought I found a set of beliefs that moved me towards that reality. And then when I realized they didn't, that internal drive didn't change. It was now I need a new face for those. And I don't even know if that's right because it's, it seems superficial because it's not like it's this, this intangible thing that I don't know if I ever have the right words for it. But yeah, like the way you're describing that, I know exactly what you mean, but I can't articulate it at all. Here I am, or what is it? Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other, right? That's the feeling I had. Because the other, the only other option was death. Like I either step into this new reality and tell the truth of my life, or I will find myself dead. And I think that that is um, the truth for many of us. I mean, uh, in recovery groups, they say you're only as sick as your secrets. And I think that a part of, a part of what many of us struggle with is like, this truth is, is being drawn out of us, always. It's whether we choose to step into it or not. I, I really wanted to ask you guys this. It's, it's related. Don't worry, everyone. But I wonder about like, um, you know, Alan was saying these truths have been there all along. Our capacity to wonder, I think, is something that is actually primal. But there is something in us that that we know deep within ourselves that that there are these questions we have, these truths we have to live by. And I think there are people who are just choose not to. They just shut it off. Right. Um, what is that? In the beginning was was the conversation. It can be translated, not the word, but the conversation. And the conversation was God and was with God. And I think that conversation dwells deep within us. It is a conversation that we long to be in relationship with the infinite, with all of creation. And I think that one of the biggest issues is that we're told not to, not to wonder, not to ask. Maybe that's a tangent, but I just know that these, this truth thing, telling the truth, meant life or death for me. And I think for so many, it it's the same options. And and there's more than one form of death. Right. That's right. 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 I'm I'm wondering, you know, in hearing each of us talk, there's clearly markers of transition. And and some of us it sounds like was just leaving one environment because that environment was toxic but not necessarily leaving the faith, you know, the underlying faith of that environment and just moving to a new environment where that faith that you had already, it sort of had a better nutrition and space to, to flourish versus like in my experience, it, the faith was gone. God was dead. 
the faith unraveled. There was like nothing. So I, I'm, it, am I misunderstanding how your experiences are different than mine? No, I think you're, at least for me, you're right on like that. The, there was never a lack of faith. There was never a moment of God is this or God is that. But I think for me, I, I can pinpoint why that is, is because for me, it was this slow burn. Like my faith or idea of God or theology, I felt like was changing in bits. And because there was not a moment, I think that that really contributed to the fact that I didn't feel like needed to lose anything because it was almost as if my theology was evolving with my experience. And I think a big part of that has to do with my personality is because I wasn't sharing with people, right? Like I, I, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't taking anyone's advice. Like if someone told me something that didn't ring true, I was just like, whatever. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have any like leaders or mentors in my life that I allowed to disappoint me. <laughs> so it was, it was just like, I, so yeah, I, I, I totally, that, that concept that your experience is, is foreign to mine for sure. I think for me, um, I, I lost it all. I mean, I remember the first thing that went for me was um, this idea of Jesus as God, Jesus as Savior. I was one of the first. I mean, I had had so many questions for so long, but I actually entertained that notion. And then I found a, a book in the public library in Placerville, California called, what's it called? Pagan Christ, something like that. It was written like in 1910. And I read it and I realized that the story of Jesus was so much like the stories of so many other mythologies where there was a baby born in a cave. And, and I began to think, hmm, maybe this isn't true in a literal way. And if it's not true, then what does that mean about the truth about Jesus? And I, it just all felt like bullshit. I mean, after a while. And, and when your entire world view begins to feel like bullshit, I couldn't even, I couldn't even walk. You know, if it, it just everything about it, the floor dropped out. And it was so disorienting and so like problematic that, um, yeah, it, it, it's hard to even like, it's not a space I like to go back to and think about. And yet I think it was also an incredibly rich time because it's where I found myself and my own voice. But for me, yeah, Rajiva, it's very much like what you described it. It, uh, it was an earthquake. I live in some sort of dualism around this regime. I feel like I, I had, like, I let go that none of it, that none of it mattered. In fact, to this day, you, if, if I'm in a really dark place, you'll know because I'll say something like, what's the point? I live with that question a lot in my life. What is the point? And yet, uh, I hear baby Alan's voice of, I was held by the universe, you know? Uh, uh, some of that still resonates in me of like, maybe I like this sense of um, presence, essence, whatever. Um, I hindsight says I could see that and I could see it in the mentors that, um, that I found, you know, that was a big thing for me. It's like when I decided to come out, 
I still wanted to ride my high horse, right? I still want, like, I kept that part of my evangelicalism of like, I need to look and be a certain way. And so I reached out to who people who I thought modeled best for me, um, what being a gay man and Christian could look like. And so maybe that's where being held was, right? Maybe it was never God or the universe, but I was certainly held by those men who, who let me cry and let me wonder and let me throw it all away and let me attempt to pick it back up. But, uh, I want to be clear in saying that, you know, I, I often will say that I am far more religious than I am spiritual. Because for me, I feel like I've had to like rebuild those, those muscles, those spiritual muscles. <laughs> that sounds so stupid, but it's like a practice. Like I just keep showing up. I keep, you know, doing the things that I think Jesus invites us to do and hoping that I can find my way back to something that's, uh, that, that speaks to something bigger. Some days it works and some days it doesn't. Uh, I'm still in that process. And I, and I don't think that that should be a big thing. I don't think people should be like, oh my God, Casey is like an atheist or whatever. Um, Cause I'm not, I'm just unsure about what being held looks like. Does that kind make of, sense? Yeah. It's it kind does. of crystallizing some stuff for me. Uh, like disparate thoughts, something about control with Bonnie and like lack of control or loss of control, or maybe control not being important anymore. And then this thing having to move forward, Casey speaking about wonder and how like that's part of being a human being. I wonder if all of us have had these threads of curiosity and wonder from when we were kids that are still a part of us that we can draw on. You asked Rajiv, like, something about like whether the floor had dropped out or whatnot. And I think I went to talk about my divorce because for me, that's when a floor dropped out. When it comes to faith, I feel like I've had multiple streams of, of meaning built into me since I was really young to where it didn't feel so traumatic. Like I was going, going through my old journals in high school and they're all brutal. <laughs> it's just so hard to read. Like, you know, I'm an awful sinner. I'm the worst. Like stuff that I would never want to hear an adolescent say about themselves. But then I came to this thing in the middle of my junior year of high school and I wrote, I often wonder what the purpose of everything is. Even more so, I wonder where to find it in the annals of history, in the laws of physics, in human interaction, in the pursuit of individual achievement of God. I look at the stars and find my place of humility. How can all this be about me or even humankind? Its pursuits do not worry the cosmos or even increase the length of history's timeline. Now I come to my point, how can such considerations be conveniently answered in a book? This question begins to fill me with doubt, but the answer is ever before me. Has God created us to obscure himself from our scope of vision? I tend to think not. And then I kind of go a little deeper. And then I, I'm, I'm realizing now that I think there are kernels of resilience and a continuity in us. Casey's talking about wonder, right? Being that thread throughout our whole lives. At some point, maybe it got squashed or, <laughs> you know, put into a certain box. But for me, there is something true, Bonnie, about it, it's a, to some, on some level, it's about control. I have to, like my, my present development is about coming to grips with you know, we're, we're, we're leaving environments that said human responsibility, like individual responsibility and control are everything. 
you're making decisions every day on whether you believe or not, whether you're going to obey or not. And there's a an ignoring all of context, all the systems that are participating in our lives, and then also the like the gray areas. So I'm I'm coming around to something. I think that question about whether it's something we can control or not is an interesting one for me personally. Sorry if that's way too much. I just read from my journal. <laughs> I think that's awesome. We should all have our journals standing nearby just in uh, case. No, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, a big part of it is your your honesty and willing to share willingness to share. But another part of the appreciation is is this is one area where it really contrasts how we're we're different and yet in relationship. You know, we we don't have the same experience when we talk about transition or tr- moving from one set of truth truths to different sets of truths uh our journeys in in this way is pretty pretty different do you think it has something to do with the fact that like forgive me if this is just a weird thing to point out but the straight white guys are the ones who had gradual truth transitions and the people who <laughs> like embodied all of these different like oppositional truths are the ones who had the floors drop out so I think that's really insightful observation, Alan. And I'm not sure, you know, but it is uh that would be a really interesting thing to study. Well, and I I, I appreciate that, Alan, because I think because I wrestle with that as a straight cisgender male, the structure that uh I grew up in was very much about perpetuating that. Um so you know, a big part of my process, not a big part, but something I was aware of in the process was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to be a man in a very different way, because this is all I've known. I wonder if it's true, Alan, that th- about this slow burn versus the, the floor dropping out, because it really doesn't require your entire life. Right. Right? Like, you can you can make statements and live throughout history, you know, women have been burned at the stake for making faith claims or believing differently. People of color have been murdered for taking up space in the world and telling their own truths. Queer people the same. And so for for you to to change your opinion, there's enough space in the world for you to change your opinion because you are a cisgendered white guy, straight white guy. Um, and it doesn't... And, and your life is not your literal life is not at stake when you change your mind or you choose to speak up and you don't you don't have to you don't have to leave to be heard right yes i just talked recently to some straight white cisgendered men who are clergy and they said you know i'm i consider myself a moderate like i've been able to go around in the circles where people disagree with me and i think there's an element of truth to that like i I eventually had to make the decision, am I going to work in conservative churches or not that don't allow gay people? you get to make that decision. But I get to make that decision. You're right. And so it's something I can come to terms with on my own time. Dang. Yeah. And I think, like, for me, the more I think about it, like, what the set of beliefs that had to change for me included the way that I had participated in a system that was oppressive to me and to, to other women. And so I, I, it was like sort of owning up to the reality that I had participated. I had, I had like swallowed that pill 
and I had participated in that system. I had upheld these beliefs. And then I felt this like just anger at myself and disgust at myself for being so unjust. And I, I think on the other side of this, like I always had sensibilities around caring for the poor and looking out for those in the, in the margins and so on. But it was a much more charity-based approach. And having gone through this transition from this one truth paradigm to now a new truth paradigm, which is always up for question as well, it's less about charity-based and more about withness. And it, and then, and then that's when the justice fires really start to burn because I realize I am, I am part of this. That's right. That's right. Yep. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's like really interesting to think about how, and Jeff talks a lot about experience being the root of the way we can talk about truth at all. And identity, several of us mentioned identity as part of our, experience and how this change in truth was also a change in identity, like maybe married to unmarried. And what does that mean to then for us as people in one truth paradigm versus another truth paradigm? I think it's all like, and, and I'm, I hope our listeners will weigh in on their experience because like we talked about our own experiences being so diverse. I imagine every single person listening, there's going to be like little moments where it's like, oh yeah. And then other times where people are going to say, that wasn't me at all. It would be really cool to hear from, from you all out there listening. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and Alan, like the, one of the, 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 streams and some of the ways that you've been talking is you've been using the word embodiment and um and then when you ask that question about you know the two of us having this more gradual shift where the bottom didn't fall out and stuff like that is i i feel like i've had the privilege my whole life to avoid embodiment my body has never been an issue uh, it's never been a subject of ridicule it's never been a reason for any kind of action towards me and there's a lot of safety in it that I'm realizing like embodiment is something that I'm like literally just now learning like this, this current phase in my life. And it's something that's super difficult for me. Um, you know, body men, you mentioned earlier, like listening to your body and I, I didn't, I don't listen. Like, <laughs> I don't want to listen, <laughs> you know, and, and, and then realizing after, you know, Alan, you asked that question, like, well, uh, there, how could like that's that's such a privilege to be able to avoid and not have to think about because there's never an external voice that's calling me out on that, and I always have to remember that those things are connected in a way, and that that I have I've had a lot of a lot of opportunity in that, and that my deconstruction or changing of truth or whatever we want to call it uh, was pretty even though it was marred by personal tragedy in certain places in my life. But even that tragedy was on the backs of someone else's body when my wife miscarried and I was there and I was affected by it, but not in the same way. And uh, I don't know and probably will never know what that feels like. Well, you know, I, I want to, I don't want to push too hard, but I've been realizing lately, like, 
in this whole conversation around fat phobia and the stuff that's happening right now in our different circles, tapping into the fact that like I was always a fat kid, <laughs> I've been fat my whole life, and I have been judged for that since I was very young and put on the outside of, of certain communities and looked at and told things. And um, I think all of us to some degree can probably find somewhere where we've gone through the cycle of shame or difference Absolutely. or otherness. And I think, you know, our steps to maturity are always immature. It's, it's immature for me to be like, Oh wow. Your experience as a woman or um, a queer person or a person of color, like me connecting with that through my experience as someone who's been in a community that, that's outside of the norm. Um, I think that you have to go through those like immature connections to kind of open up your consciousness to be like, like I like recently hearing people talk about, uh, you know, fat, fat shaming and fat phobia when the people are not themselves fat. Like that was a weird experience for me. I was like, is this what it feels like? <laughs> you know, like, is this what it feels like to have people who are, uh, token, in conversations and people who are not a part of the community doing their own work and, and feeling like just so disconnected from it. Like, okay, go let them all work it out themselves. Don't come to me as a resource. Like all all those different questions that like, I kind of hear in different areas. So maybe not to push you, Jeff, but like anyone listening and also maybe you connecting to those places where you have been experienced exclusion is something to kind of meditate through. And think deeply on. No, I appreciate the push because you're mentioning that, like that is also outside of my experience. Like mm-hmm. I, I maybe personally, I felt you had body images, but it was never, and it was never an external thing. And I feel, I don't know, lucky and, and, and guilty about that all at the same time. But it's, it's, you're right. Like no, none of that has influenced my faith journey. None of it. My body has not entered into it. So I can easily ignore it. And, and if I could be clear, like the fat phobia thing hasn't affected my faith journey that much because it's, it's not like that's on the outside of, of church experience. What brings me back to Jesus, by the way, everyone, is this idea of this requires your whole life. This might require your whole being, including your body. Um, and, and when I was moving through my truth, I kept coming back to that, that Jesus understood what it meant to live truthfully. Your your truth might require your whole life, your whole body, and that and that um, meant something to me. Like I needed to know that that my truth was worth my whole life. And I think that that's um, – so when I started doing organizing, I was a community organizer before I was a pastor. And I often say that I think that organizing prepared me to be the best pastor I could be. And when I was being interviewed, they said, you know, what is your relationship to immigration? What is your relationship to mass incarceration? Because those are the things that I would be working on. And my response is nothing, right? Nothing. I have no no relation to that. But I do, I do know the pain of what it means to live on the periphery and have a society leave you for dead. And I'm willing to sit and listen and hold space for any person and learn from them. Learn, sit at their feet and allow them to tell me their story and allow, and, and I will believe them. Like that is my commitment to this work. 
to always listen and to believe the stories I hear and honor them with my body. And I think that that's the invitation, Jeff, and for others who would say, like, like this isn't my experience, you know. I, I, but, but, but as you begin to hear truths, how do you, how do you hold those truths, and how are you willing to put your body on the line uh, for the sake of a for another? That's very Jesusy. That's awesome, Casey. As you were saying that, I think the most profound lesson that I learned as a youth pastor that I think really laid the groundwork for me to be able to be in that place to just listen is, is being a youth pastor and recognizing that the first lesson that I learned when I was working with adolescents was it doesn't matter if it's true or real. If you discount their experiences, their relationships, their boyfriends, their girlfriends, all the, the quote unquote drama that happens in high school and you discount it and you try to take them beyond that, you're doing them a disservice because you're denying and not acknowledging the reality that they actually live in. And you're, you're doing that from a place of privilege. And that posture, I think, is what made me so uncomfortable going forward in, in church and, and probably informed a lot of where I ended up. And then now hearing the, the voice and the, the stories of people of color, of people on the margins, of, of, of women, of trans people, of whoever, and get, taking that posture first, I'm thankful for that experience and that I hope that that, that stays with me. Um, because it's people's experience and you can't unexplain that. You can't push people out of that. And, and, and that's why, you know, it's, it's one thing for, for me to say to someone, it gets better, but it's another thing, Casey, for you to say that to someone and my, you know, as who I am, my job is not to take people out. My, my job is to acknowledge where they're at. Is your God a gaslighter? <laughs> That's the question. We like, move from is your God a dick to is your God a gaslighter? Yeah, All right. Like, same same thing. Same no, thing. Your experience doesn't matter. You know, oh, you didn't feel that. You didn't experience that. That's not true. You know, like, I feel like I have worshipped that God in the past at different times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all have. So it's a completely different experience than I imagine to realize that you're saving your own life and to realize that you're saving other people's lives, other people whose lives are just as important as yours. And I think we, you know, we are, we're sort of always living in that tension between those two and of the ways that we're privileged and the ways that we're, we're not privileged or the ways that we're the parts of ourselves that we might even hide that are unprivileged. I, I think that that's why I have been pushing all along throughout the truth episodes to talk about being in relationship, right? Because it's not just you alone. You're not just moving through the cosmos by your damn self. And, and when you make that shift to tell the truth, the experience feels isolating. It feels as though you're going to go alone. Even in my own shifting, look what I've come upon, but four amazing friends. I mean, we, we found each other. And I wouldn't trade these friendships for anything in the world, quite frankly. 
that's that's something that I would tell anybody who is on this journey, who is sitting at home, who is maybe sitting on their truth, who's, you know, we've we've heard from people who like one there's a teenager who used to sit in their closet and listen to our podcast. Right? Like for any of you who are sitting in closets, whether they be physical or whatever, when you make that shift, there will be people on the other side. And you will learn from them and you will grow with them. And when you make that shift, people are watching. And maybe they are not ready to grow with you. Maybe they're not ready to walk with you, but you are allowing them to start the path. I mean, when I decided to come out, I was in a small-ass Christian college of 150 students. Every student who had come out before me either came out and was thrown out or ran out, basically, or came out after they graduated because they knew it was unsafe. And in my mind, it was, if I come out now, I am basically laying the groundwork for people to come behind me. And if I don't do it, who will? How much longer do we do, do, do we have to wait? Always being in mind, keeping in mind that um, that this just isn't about your own truth. When you lay these truths out, you are you are building new relationships, and you are also paving the path for others uh, who will come behind you or who just need it. And that, you know, Casey calling out individualism is very poignant at this moment in time because this idea of uh, bootstrap success. Totally. Um, all that kind of stuff. The, the individualism is is being seen for what it is, which is essentially we've I, we've created a, a system of I, idolatry around um, predatory people. You know, the, these, say that again. Louder for those right? in the back. <laughs> and, and and the but it's it's an extension of the kind of religion we all have experience with. Totally. Totally. And, and, and this is, this moment in time is shedding a huge light on where the real work, where real grace, where real love, real community exists. And it's not with the people that have the spotlights on them that are predatory masters. It's, it's with us. It's with people who are willing to, to have open arms and open hearts and find ways to be connected and survive. And a willingness to be a part of that larger community feels like a loss of control. Yes. For a lot of and, folks. And, yes. and and when you worship an all powerful God, what does that do to your relationship to power? And I think that's, you know, that's part of our what we're trying to explore here is um then you worship power. When you worship an all powerful God, you worship power. Individual power often. I need to think about that. <laughs> I'm gonna write that down. So, well, I mean, it, and, it, and that's that's a big part of the power of the 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 Christ um, is there's this death. If if you worship the Christ on the cross, you're worshiping vulnerability. Yes, right, right. If you're worshiping Christ the Victor in this, like you know, carrying a wielding a sword, you're worshiping worshiping that militaristic power, and it's all in the Bible, right? And it happened pretty quickly, right? Like in, mm-hmm. in the course of, of yep. Christianity, that, that transition happened real fast. Absolutely. So if we didn't do this, we none of us, we might have felt really isolated, but we didn't do it alone. We didn't walk this path of transitioning mm-hmm. from one set of truths to another. So who were your guides? Jeff, 
<laughs> okay, I know that sounds so funny, but like Jeff was a part of it. I mean, Jeff Jeff was my uh, he was my dealer. Like I remember being in Bible college and being like, you know, I'm not getting the good stuff, and he would like whisper and he'd you know, hand me something. He'd be like, Hey, Alan, if the flood never actually happened, you can still believe in the Bible, quote unquote. And I was like, Are you kidding me? He's like, Here, here's this resource. Here's this resource. And so I bought books by like we talked about Tony Campolo, like you know. Books with Tony Campolo, Adventures and Missing the Point. Uh, N.T. Wright was a really important one for me to read the Bible as this, like, staging of stories and um, and even what story means and even what reading means. And so there's there's folks. And then I, I don't think I really took off until I started encountering liberation theology in my my seminary experience. I, I'd say for me, I mean, this is, this is weird. We're doing a little bit of the congratulating one another but the the truth is you know bonnie was hugely instrumental in in my awakening as far as i i my life i was like you know this is all working you know we're we're imperfect but we're trying to do better and then to have these new realizations come along thanks to bonnie and her willingness to explore and learn you just i i could not sidestep it and so from there, trying to reach out to existing mentors, existing friends, and finding there was no substance, like, anywhere, then it was just like, then this the scales on the eyes, you know, using biblical languages fall away, and you're like, holy shit, these people are just hollow um, robots when it comes to their, their faith walk, so to speak. So, but then, but then to have to, probably the biggest space of that, that was a void was going from thinking you had something legitimate and true and honest and well-formed to like, okay, that's not real. And then not having any knowledge growing up in these conservative high control environments, you don't have knowledge of what else is out there. So then to to make that leap to find and seek and like, oh, okay, there's some great resources, but not um, – I didn't have a dealer other than, than Bonnie, and we were both like – had never been users. <laughs> so, you know, kind of – That's always a bad find, thing, by the way. The <laughs> like, that can always be dangerous. <laughs> there's a lot of listeners who are in that same spot right now. I get looking. We get messages. Yeah, we 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 get mess- yeah, we, <laughs> we get messages constantly as a show. I get messages privately of like, okay, this is where I'm at, and I have no frame of reference, no teachers, no partners, no nobody to go on this journey with, and so everyone's always asking for resources, and I actually think that's something not to be ashamed of to like search for bit for wider teachers. Like that's a. Uh, that's an important part of the journey. You said, you said wider, not whiter, right? Wider. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what, what? W, a, a wide breadth of, of teachers. Maybe diverse. Thank I, you. Yes. I am, um, you know, um, my teachers were, well, first of all, Bertram Johnson, who many of you have heard me talk a lot about. He was, I call him my fairy godfather. He was the, he was the first gay Christian man I knew. And the and the first adult that I told um, that I was gay who believed me and who didn't try to fix me. And he was working for an organization called Multi-Faith AIDS Project in Seattle. And so my teachers came in the form of men dying of AIDS um, who had lived a life of silence, 
who had lived um who had lived through a pandemic spending hours and days with these men um taught me a lot and then there was uh, i had a professor named Jeff Mallinson who came my senior year uh, of bible school um who was teaching philosophical theology and that's so philosophical theology was like my first bump right and then um my new advisor Stacy Kitahata gave me um um just a sister away uh by Renita Weems and that that was my introduction to liberation theology and I never went back ever uh because it was like everything I needed I came through philosophy and black women and men dying of AIDS. <laughs> so it's interesting to think about some of my teachers um, who I wasn't ready for them yet. You know, there's that saying that when the student's ready, the teacher shows up. But then after you've gone down the path a little ways and you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, if I had actually followed that, that uh, thread of thought that that person was offering to me at that moment, things might have ended up different differently. Um, I remember a teacher in the Adventist system who like would whisper to me, um, you know, that the story of, of uh, Adam and Eve, you know, that's just a myth, right? And I, I remember thinking, does she mean that it's not true? Does she mean, you know, I just remember wondering about that and then just sort of stuffing it down and, and moving on. But um, books have always been my teachers, I think. Uh, Sue Monk Kid, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, was a really formative book for me. Um, and also Jim Marion, um, Death of the Mythic God and the Rise of Evolutionary Spirituality, hugely influential. Both of those books happened, they were just like within my reach by happenstance. And I picked them up and it was pretty powerful. To add just a, another book, there's a book called Our Religions, where there are six major religions, and they're written from scholars from their, their own context, and it's a compilation. It's not super hard to read, and it is just brilliant. I think digging deep into that, and it's a pretty large book, just shaped me in uh, an appreciation for my own tradition, my own place kind of in the world, brought me into the wider community. So I think teachers can be kind of anywhere. And for something that was a helpful resource for me was Five Stages of the Soul, um, which, which, anyway, it's worth a read. For any listeners like looking for something a little lighter, uh, Holy Envy by Barbara Bound Taylor just recently came out. Great book. Great book on encountering other religions and other traditions and other, other truths out there that you may not have and appreciating them without co-opting them. Or take a world religions class from your local community college. <laughs> yeah. or, or anthropology. Or go like, visit a community that's yeah. not yours. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, did it for me. Going to a Hindu mandir blew my mind. I just like sat there and I was like, oh my God, I have to rethink everything that I think about myself and my own religious practice. Because there was something so familiar happening there that was powerful and something mm -hmm. very different too. And it's... Yeah. That kind of experience is worth doing. So visit visit other places. Well, you encountered Christ there too, <laughs> right? In, and it was in, really in it was Hindu form. Really unsettling. Mm -hmm. 
I remember sitting every every morning when I was living in India, sitting uh, on the terrace and smelling the 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 incense from the temple and hearing the call from the masjid and being like, "There's something so so profound, like something bigger than I can ever understand." Put yourself in positions where you're forced to. But but think I would. I would say, though, I would say in that is be aware of where you're at. Like, Bonnie, going yes. back to what you were saying, where you 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 weren't ready for certain messages or certain people. I took a class in my uh, – during my bachelor's degree. It was an apologetics class. And the reason I signed up for it, because it was apologetics. I want to learn how to defend my faith. But it was not like any apologetics class I ever had. The whole point of this class was – we are going to expose you to literature that is not your own, not as a way to defend your faith, but to have a broader understanding of your journey by listening to the journey of others. And I – there's a lot of great books in that class. Like one of the things we had to read was Malcolm X's biography. We had, It was the first time I read Gutierrez, uh, Liberation Theology, like all these books. But at the time, it never – it didn't resonate. I didn't reread those books until almost a decade later. Where I was like, oh, I see. For me, it had to start with Rob Bell, with N.T. Wright, with guys that that look like me. Unfortunately, but I don't know. I don't know if I would have felt enough kinship to move forward if I felt that I was alone. But I saw people that that you know, and and I I wouldn't I wouldn't have articulated this in the moment. But now that I'm looking back, I saw people that look like me that were that were putting to words things that I was thinking and was too afraid to put words to because my job depended on it because my reputation depended on it or whatever. And I mean, those were important steps for me. So I think, you know, really paying attention to where we're at is important. And I don't think that, and forgive, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I don't think, I think it's easy for us to easy for someone to be listening to this conversation and feel like we're talking about deconstruction, which I think when we talk about that word, we, we, I think what the narrative that's been created in this space is that deconstruction is you had this one moment of change and now you're a new person and that's your new normal. And I think that what we're all talking about is it's not about deconstruction or reconstruction. It's just about, I don't even know how to articulate that, but it's about something more than, you know, just jumping from Island to Island or truth to truth or house to house. It's, it's something else. Honesty, attention, evolving and changing, all wrapped up in. I created kind of this like 15 things that I, one of the questions that Bonnie was asking us earlier is like, what do you wish you knew then? Or like, what resources do you have that you, you wish you could share? I created like this morning when I was drinking coffee and thinking about this conversation come up, I want to share all of them. Maybe I'll write something and just reference this and put it on the, the blog, but I read these compassion cards in the morning by Pema Chodron that that use uh, Buddhist teaching in the Lojong tradition, and so it's it's called Lojong, and and it has these sayings and some explanation on the back, and uh, they're they're really nice reminders and and pretty powerful for kind of orienting the day. And I came up with a few for people in spiritual transitions, and um, is it okay if I share one or two of those in this space, or should I just post them because this. Yeah, we, we can tend to be long-winded. Share your favorite, Alan. My favorite? Give us, give us my the highlights. One out of 15? <laughs> or I'll just share just a few. Um, <laughs> try to embrace a sense of adventure 
in the midst, midst of uncertainty. Uh, be curious, not judgmental. Have compassion for yourself and for others on the journey. And what that kind of means is bow to as much as you can in your tradition, even when leaving it behind on the roadside. Uh, acknowledge it. Some stuff you have to burn down, right? <laughs> and you have to be angry about. But whatever you can bow to that you're leaving behind, do it and honor it and leave it to the side. Uh, let go of shame around your earnestness and your ignorance. Get embodied. There's more to that. Um, decenter and contextualize your myths, stories, and identities. Get comfortable with cognitive dissonance. And what I mean by that is like, don't just shove it down. When you when you see these these two different things happening in you and these two different competing ideas, just pay attention to them. Like take a step back and recognize them rather than trying to avoid them. Uh, there's a lot more, obviously, in here, but those are just some things I've been thinking through. And maybe I'll post all fifteen. But you know, the, not, none of those are your own, Alan. Now, of course those, not. Those no. have been been around for millennia. But you know, like Jeff was talking about with Rob Bell, you know, what you're talking about with these beautiful bits and pieces. We sometimes down the road we look back and we feel kind of a sense of like, well, yeah, mine was Rob Bell, who was actually, you know, um, Love Wins was kind of an important book in my journey too. I'm like, you know, um, okay, if I was swimming in a pool and some pimply faced teenager saved my life. And he turned out to be a jerk later in life. He still holds a place of importance in 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 my journey. You know, so I think kind of what you were saying, Alan, when you look back, um, rather than having some shame or conflicted feelings over moments and things that helped move you along, hold them dear. You know, hold, give them a place of reverence. People used to set up like altars, right? Along the Absolutely. road. And they would mark it oh and recognize it. Oh my god, we should yep. put an altar for Bonnie. That's I'm going to make an altar for <laughs> oh, Bonnie please. in my house. Oh, oh my god. Oh my. Casey, that's just too too much. <laughs> One other thing that I recently heard from, oh, uh, oh, he was actually but, on the show. Uh, Joey. Uh, Joey was in the, how even uh, evangelical groups skew progressive in, in proximity to whiteness. So that, that's an episode that could be in the show notes. He was sharing about using your faith and your faith tradition like art. Think of it in terms of art and you're a part of creating something beautiful. But I think all artists know that it begins by encountering themselves. I really appreciated what Jeff said about his guides had to be guides that talk like him, look like him, moved in the world a little bit like him to begin with. Because until we do the work of encountering ourselves first, we can't really be in relationship with anybody. And I do think that it's really tempting to go from the jumping from the one island, I think Jeff said that too, to the next island, like going to a Hindu temple and expecting to encounter Christ there. Well, I don't think Christ is everywhere. And I hope that doesn't make me, you know, blasphemous, people in my church listening. <laughs> Christ isn't everywhere. Jesus isn't everywhere. I would say the Christ. Yeah, we could disagree is a, about a plurality that. Plurality is in lots of places. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. And I think that's, that's okay. Episode, and you're wrong, but that's I think okay. that's okay. Because um, 
there's something else there that you get to encounter because you go in firmly understanding the encounter that you've had with oneself. So I think it's really tempting, especially when we believe in this monolithic God in this monotheistic way to think that that God really pervades all. And um, that's one thing that I wish that I had had known. Hmm. Yeah. This is, I think this is like the perfect way to kind of close out this four part conversation on truth to really land at a place where it's like all this stuff that we put out before in the previous three episodes, here's the life and the experience that that came from. And I, I really, um, I'm going to, I'm going to jump into the Alnsey real quick. And I am just going to say, I love you guys. Like appreciate having these conversations and hearing these, these experiences and being reminded that, you know, where we may have came from a similar worldview, but we all had such profoundly different experiences within that worldview and remembering as we go forward and express our truth and encounter other truths to recognize that there is no monolith. There is no two peoples whose experience and walk through this journey is the same. And if we can remain mindful of that as we walk through and encounter each other and encounter others, I think that maybe the world would be a little better place, or at least <laughs> at least the, the, the podcast sphere will be uh, as we move forward. So any other final thoughts before we kind of uh, close this chapter on truth and find some other long-winded way to <laughs> express something simple as you guys are I would awesome. call anyone a friend who tries to make life on this little rock a little bit more bearable yeah i i um i agree thank you so much for uh being part of this journey with me because now it really does feel like rather than having a guide that i'm trying to follow i feel like i have this i have all of you to walk with and to teach me along the way i call samwise that's what I want to be. <laughs> Casey, come on. He's the best character. He he is my favorite character. I I think just you know, wherever you are in your process, know that it's a forever process. Um rejoice in every moment you can find a reason to rejoice. Um, accept setbacks with sobriety and be willing to give yourself a break and uh, connect with people who will help you keep going and, and not try to push you in a direction, but uh, other than the direction you need to be going. There's too much wisdom in this episode. My heart and mind are too full. <laughs> Rajiv hearing that, like, accept so, so, you know, setbacks with sobriety. I'm like, oh, my God, I have to think for another whole week about what that means and means for me. Oh, it feels so great. I would just say that uh, hold life lightly, you know? Um, just just enjoy the journey and um, know that if you don't get it right today, there's always tomorrow. And even tomorrow might suck, and that's okay. Just keep going. And tune in every single month. <laughs> <laughs> And let us know what you think. Um, 
You can add your voice to this particular conversation and comment at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 168. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 168. And if you'd like to further continue this conversation, join us Monday on Facebook Live and YouTube Live as we kind of revisit this episode and take some of your questions. And if you can't be there live and in person, you can always email us your thoughts at podcast at irenacast.com. That's podcast podcast at irenacast.com. We have been really enjoying that time together on Mondays. Uh, On the other side of the music, we will be playing uh, a game familiar to those that have been listening to the show for a long time. It's called Famous Christians for 100. Stay tuned. We are on the other side of the music, and we are going to be playing a game that I think was in the first five episodes of Irenicast. When we first started back in the day, we had a few segments that we came up with, and this was one of them. It's Famous Christians for 100. It is a play on Jeopardy. I'm sure many of you, I don't know, do people still watch Jeopardy? I don't know how that works. Um, I honestly never watched a full episode of Jeopardy, so I wouldn't know. I just know the cultural reference. What? Yeah. I, it's boring to really? me. I don't. It's so fun. It no, especially when you can feel superior I'm, to I'm other people because you know something. You know some you stuff, know. yeah. To, to each their own. To each their own. This is our version of Jeopardy. And basically what we've done is we've all created – not curated or created, but we've found a quote from a famous Christian, dead or alive. And and the we put quotes around Christian. Like we understand that Christian is a wide – so people that would culturally recognize someone as Christian. Uh, so there's there's some wiggle room in there in terms of who we might be quoting. And each of us have to guess what the other – who said the quote that the other host is going to present to us. I think that's straightforward. It makes sense. Um, Alan, let's start with you. What is your quote? <laughs> I was going to try to do something from like Frank Peretti in some novel somewhere, This Present Darkness, but – you know, I I decided to go with something different. So here we go. And you, by the way, when you answer, you have to say who is, or it doesn't count. Okay, that's how it works, Jeff. That's no, you don't. Works. You can do whatever uh, the heck you want. There is a reason Christianity is violently opposed in our world, while other religion philosophies are tolerated. Biblical Christianity evokes violent responses from some people. Because only in Christianity is there an absolute. <laughs> Let me say this clearly. Because only in Christianity is there an absolute right and wrong. People hate the Bible and Christianity because of the law of God. Allen's journals, circa <laughs> two thousand five. I was going to say two thousand and sixteen. You have to go two thousand two, man. No, that's two thousand two status for me. John, John John MacArthur. Pat Roberts. Franklin Graham Jr. Nobody has said who is yet. John Piper. Who is John MacArthur? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Who is he really, though? He um, doesn't even know, honey. He doesn't even know. <laughs> the quote comes from Carmen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good the music, one. That's, that's a secret. that's a deep oh, cut. Yeah, Alex. I yes, love it. All, I think we all know Carmen. <laughs> you all have heard Carmen's Trump song, right? Oh my god! No. no. Oh, oh goodness. 
It's it's My awful. Life's about to get better. But I'm gonna nope. I, you go go on YouTube and put Carmen nope. and Trump, and it nope. is whoo. Nope. Yeah. Just say no. Don't add your click to that nonsense. <laughs> That's right. It, Don't harbor terrorism. I already did. I won't put it in the show notes, but if you are so inclined, you can look it up. And it is, uh, yeah, wow. Wow. I will look that up. And I just want to say I appreciate Carmen speaking into our conversation about truth. Only in Christianity is there absolute right and wrong. That's why people I, hate, and, hate and us. Where, where in history has Christian had a violent reaction? It's <laughs> like, where? <laughs> no, it has. It has. It, it absolutely has. There are people being persecuted right now for their Christian faith in different countries. It does happen. Okay. But, and in his, Christian history began with that. But as far as like. But then ended with us perpetuating it. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. That's like, been let's all be throughout. Yeah, yeah. Who's the who's the violent one? But uh, it just sounds to me like, you know how when Americans are like, they hate us because our freedom. They hate us because we're free. <laughs> like that whole thing. Not because we're exploiting and, you know, putting our military around the world and dominating all the conversations internationally. But they hate us for our freedom and they hate us for our truth, you guys. Carmen. Oh not Alan O'Brien, circa whatever. <laughs> Carmen. Oh man. All right, Rajiv. Let's uh let's let's hear what you got. <laughs> Rajiv. <okay. laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, I got I found I got a great one. Be nice to whites. They need you to rediscover their humanity. That's great. I like it. Be nice. <laughs> they need you to rediscover their humanity. Hmm. I have no idea. Was this a professor you had? No, somebody who I love dearly, though. It makes sense. It'll make sense when you hear who it is. Right. Right. All right. I should probably just say who it is. It's Bishop Desmond Tutu. I was going to say like Miguel de la Torre or something. (laughs) I don't don't know if he would say that. Maybe. Yeah, he might not. But it it makes so much sense, right? When you Mm -hmm. think Bishop Mm -hmm. Tutu. All right. Interesting. Bonnie? Okay, here we go. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. How many people have done this trope of lunatic or liar? Like, oh, man. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm saying C.S. Lewis. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to second Jeff's guess. Third, I don't know, Rick Warren. <laughs> C.S. Lewis is correct. <laughs> Rick Warren. <laughs> That's a mere Christianity, right? Mere Christianity is that where that that quote comes I from? Think so. I think so. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm preaching on I Jesus I as lunatic. You know what's so. the giveaway there is the poached egg thing. You know, right. I should have yeah. I should have thrown back a little bit further. <laughs> yeah. All right, Casey, what you got? Frankly. Condoms are a very, very poor protection against sexually transmitted diseases. Whoa. Hmm. Mike Pence. (laughs) Who is Pope Francis? Who is Mike Pence? I think that sounds like Franklin Graham. Yeah, because he said frankly like that. I almost said that too. Can I give another guess? Yeah, go for it. Mother Teresa. 
I mean, <laughs> you're not wrong. But it was. Uh, Bonnie, do you have a guess before I tell everyone? I have no idea. It is the Christian supremacist himself, Mike Pence. Oh, uh, I called it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. He really said that? He sure did. He said Man. it in 2002 on CNN. God. Mike Pence circa 2002, you know. But not change. I mean, 2002, 2020, you know. Same. Dang. I was just thinking we were joking about Alan 2002, Mike Pence 2002. We might have been friends. Maybe. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we we talk, maybe we should do an episode on sex in general. That would be interesting. Yeah. We've talked about that years ago, and uh, I don't know if I was ready for it to be enlightened, you know? Or just generally talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about sex. It's just like poop jokes and stuff that I can't talk about, you know? That's the difference. Well, for some people, that's one and the same, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here to shame anyone for what what, it, what does it for him, okay? <laughs> All right, Jeff. All right. And now to you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my turn. Um, Here's my quote. If we try to rescue God from his sovereignty over suffering, we sacrifice his sovereignty to turn all things for good. Who is John Piper? I don't know. Sovereignty is a big word if it's Franklin Graham Jr. He doesn't (laughs) use big words very often. I'll give you each $5 if it's not John Piper. And whoever guesses it right, I'll give you 10 Look, I, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to be, you better be ready to Venmo me if it's. It sounds like that. just about every religion that it's I've like, ever read. Who is uh, John Paul II? Hate not Catholics over here, Rajiv. What's going on, man? I, just throwing him in, bringing him into the Protestant conversation. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Alan, you're too good at this game. It is uh, John Piper. Can I tell you why I knew that? Well, first of all, I read a bunch of his books way back when. His whole perspective, in case he don't take a deep breath and look away, <laughs> look straight into my eyes when I talk about this, okay? How dare you? John Piper's idea is that everything is for God's glory. Everything. Everything that's ever happened or ever will be is 100% only and primarily made for God's glory. So he talked about being a Christian hedonist, enjoy life because it's for God's glory, uh, embrace suffering because it's he for God's God glory. He and God get to be narcissists together. Right. So right. God God micromanages the world to extract, to suck out of it the most glory that God could. It's unfortunate. I just think it, it's it to me this this quote embodies this scene from the office where Michael Scott is hiding behind a door. <laughs> Yes. Uh, with Andy peeking around the corner and he turns to the camera and says, how can one person be so self-unaware? And to me, like, how, if God has sovereignty, how is it under threat all the time? <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> this whole, this, the whole, like, quote of that. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's, it's the embodiment of how can someone be so self-unaware? I just, it just makes me giggle because it has to. Otherwise, it'll make me cry. All right. Well, that <laughs> that will do it for us this week. This was a wonderful journey through truth that we had. Uh, I enjoyed every moment of it. So 
That'll do it for us this week. Uh, if you enjoy Renacast and you would like to join the work that we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link uh, at com slash PayPal. And we want to thank in particular David Shepard for his donation on PayPal. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, we're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. It's irenicast.com slash PayPal. Uh, Irenicast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. For more information on other ways you can partner with the show, please go to irenicast.com slash support. Uh, you can also support the show by simply just making sure you're subscribed to the show and never miss on an, a, an episode on whatever listening platform you're on. And if you can, leave a rating and or review. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. It's Casey. Peace, love, and hugs. This is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you.